Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. I wanted to take a second just to say thank you to those of you who have subscribed or who have left comments, both both good and bad. And also wanted to give a, a shout out to Book of Mormon Review. If you haven't seen them yet, they're worth a look and I'll leave a link to them in the show notes. Our last video ended with Alma and Amulek debating lawyers in front of a hostile crowd in the city of Ammonihah. Or at least the lawyers wanted to have a debate, but Amulek's testimony rattled Zeezrom, the opposition's chief attorney, and took him off of his game. In today's video, which will cover Alma 12 and Alma 13, Alma follows up by giving one of the best explanations of the atonement that we have in the Book of Mormon. But first, let's take a minute to answer our trivia question from last time. Last time, in chapter 11, we talked about the Nephite currency, and our question was, which of Alma's sons shared a name with the unit of Nephite currency? And the answer to that is Shiblon. The Shiblon was worth half a senum, but it was also the name of Alma's second son, and we will meet him in Alma chapter 38. In fact, Alma chapter 38 is Alma speaking to his son for the entire chapter. There was also a Jaredite named Shiblon mentioned in Ether chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, but that's really not the same because they spoke a different language. Maybe naming a son Shiblon would be the Nephite equivalent of naming a daughter Penny. Also, just to make things weird, Alma 11.19 tells us that an Antion was worth three Shiblons. And midway through chapter 12, Alma is going to be confronted by a man named Antiona or Antiona. So maybe naming babies after money was just kind of a thing that Nephites did. Who knows? But now we return to Ammonihah. After Amulek's word silenced Zeezrom, Alma came forward, and although he addressed Zeezrom in particular, the conversation was heard by everyone there. And that makes me curious about the forum in which their conversation happened. Although it's all presented sequentially as if it all happened at one time, it's possible that their discussion with the lawyers spanned over several days. Or, since most people in their audience probably spent their days farming, it might have taken place over several evenings. But in any case, it was a large event that polarized the people of the city, as we'll see in the next few chapters. Alma, we are told in verse 1, had caught Zeezrom in his lying and deceiving to destroy him. Despite his expert subtleties, Yezrim's attempt had failed. Alma told him, Thou seest that thy thoughts are made known unto us. If you go back and read Yezrim's line of questioning in the last chapter, to me it seems kind of transparent, so I'm surprised that Yezrim's efforts were considered so subtle that only a mind reader could detect them. That's why I speculated last time that maybe his tone was friendly or jovial to disguise his 
real intent. Here's what Alma says to him in verse 4. And now seest that we know that thy plan was a very subtle plan as to the subtlety of the devil, for to lie and to deceive this people that thou mightest set them against us, to revile us and to cast us out. Zeezrom started asking questions again, but having been shaken and humbled, his goal was no longer to ensnare Alma and Amulek, but instead that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. He asked Alma to explain more to him about the resurrection of the dead. Before discussing the resurrection, though, Alma began by briefly explaining how gospel knowledge is acquired. In verses 9 through 11, Alma explained that the knowledge of God's mysteries is given in proportion to the heed and diligence that we give God's commandments. Our ability to comprehend the gospel seems to hinge on our willingness to apply it. Those who will not harden their heart receive progressively more until they understand God's mysteries in full. Those who do harden their hearts receive progressively less until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. It seems to me that we unlock understanding of gospel mysteries by keeping the corresponding commandments. And new commandments allow us to live in a more godlike way and obtain the gospel knowledge associated with living that way. Instead of being restrictive, when we look at commandments as a mechanism for imparting mysteries, they start to become a blessing. In Doctrine and Covenants 59, when the Savior describes the blessings of those who obey the gospel, he says, And they shall also be crowned with blessings from above, yea, and with commandments not a few. Essentially, if you are obedient, God will bless you with commandments, not a few. We often talk about how keeping the commandments brings us blessings, but do we recognize that the commandments themselves are blessings? Next, Alma expands on Amulek's explanation of the final judgment, which follows resurrection. If we have hardened our hearts and have chosen to live out of compliance with God's laws, then our state will be awful. Verse 14, for our words will condemn us. Yea, all our works will condemn us. We shall not be found spotless, and our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God, and we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us and to hide us from his presence. It does not say that God will condemn us. Our words, works, and thoughts are enough by themselves to condemn us. In the last video, I conjectured that maybe Zeezrom might have compared himself to Amulek and felt humbled by the contrast. In a similar way, when we compare ourselves to God at the judgment bar, we will feel eternally fallen and inadequate by comparison. Now verse 19. Now it came to pass that when Alma had made an end of speaking these words, the people began to be more astonished. The lawyers planning to entrap Alma and Amulek were probably starting to get worried. Things were not going as planned. One of the city's leaders stepped forward. His name was Antiona. Antiona intended, presumably, to finish the job that Zeezrom had started of discrediting Alma. So he began to challenge Alma. And I am not able to detect whether his tone was friendly or combative from context. 
What strikes me, though, is that although the people challenging the prophet were lawyers and political leaders, they were challenging them on doctrinal topics in the gospel. Think of the mindset that would make you think that arguing with the prophet about a gospel topic is a good thing to do. Think of the arrogance you would need to have. Their questions, though, show an impressive knowledge. Laman and Lemuel, back in 1 Nephi 15, also asked Nephi some profound questions. King Noah's priests asked some good questions. Even today, we find highly intelligent people with an apparently deep knowledge of the scriptures arguing against church leaders. So, if God's mysteries are only given to the righteous, as we discussed a few verses back, how do so many spiritual detractors know the scriptures so well? Is it possible for someone to have a thorough knowledge of God's revealed word, but be oblivious to his mysteries? And if so, how? Perhaps the answer lies in understanding what a mystery is. The way we use the word today, it means something difficult or impossible to understand or explain, something that only a brilliant mind could possibly untangle. We think of Sherlock Holmes solving mysteries with, with his exceptionally strong observational skills and an encyclopedic knowledge of little-known trivia. But is this the process for gaining spiritual knowledge? Back in medieval times, one meaning of mystery referred to intimate knowledge of a specific art or trade. And mystery has the same roots as words like ministry or mastery. But there's an even more relevant definition. According to religious dictionaries in use at the time of the Book of Mormon, a mystery is a truth that can only be understood by spiritual revelation and cannot be fully explained to another person. To repeat, a truth that can only be understood by spiritual revelation and which cannot be fully explained to another person. That's actually the definition in the dictionary from back then. To me, that's a much more meaningful definition. Although it flies in the face of popular wisdom, which tells us that if you can't explain something, then you don't understand it. Perhaps we can compare learning God's mysteries, as the word is used in the scriptural or historical sense, to learning a foreign language. Most languages have concepts that cannot be adequately translated into English. Portuguese, for example, has the word saudade, which is a feeling of melancholic longing for someone who is absent. Italian has tormentone, which is a song, not necessarily unpleasant, which plays over and over and over in your head. Spanish has the word ganas, which can be translated as urge or desire or motivation, but a native speaker of any of those languages would find the translations that I just gave to be somewhat lacking. My translation wouldn't quite have the same punch or power when translated. I'll give one last example of how things get lost in translation. Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, posed unique challenges for its translators because in Russian, the names of some characters had more than a dozen variations. Alexei, for example, could also be called Alyosha, Alyoshka, Alyoshenka, Alyosheka, Alexichik, Lyosha, or Lyoshenka. And I don't speak Russian, and hopefully I'm pronouncing those somewhat correctly. But the nickname that was used 
would tell a native Russian reader the relative age of the speaker, the relationship of the person talking to Alexei, and it might also indicate the social setting. How do you translate all those shades of meaning and affection when you make the translation to English? It's simply not possible. Even if you were to learn Russian, that might not be enough to understand it all. You might need a lifetime of immersion in Russian culture to pick up on all of the nuances. And I would propose that learning the mysteries of the gospel is similar. It's like learning a spiritual language. There are no shortcuts. You have to simply immerse yourself in it, surround yourself with it, and practice it frequently. Eventually, you'll find yourself making connections or understanding concepts that you didn't understand before. But when this happens, even when you fully understand the message, you won't be able to fully translate the meaning of what you now understand to someone who doesn't speak that same language. And in my opinion, that's why intelligent men such as Laman, Lemuel, Sherem, Zezrum, and now Antiona might have learned the words of the gospel, but completely missed the message. To paraphrase Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Matthew, their lips could produce the right words, but their hearts were far from the truth. So coming back to Antiona, he attempted to corner the prophet Alma on the topic of resurrection. He asked, in verse 21, What does the scripture mean, which saith that God placed cherubim and a flaming sword on the east of the Garden of Eden, lest our parents should enter and partake of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever? And thus we see that there was no possible chance that they should live forever. And Alma answered. He began by discussing two trees in the Garden of Eden, two trees which had special properties. First, the tree of life, whose fruit changed people from a mortal to an immortal state. Second, you had the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which, as the name implies, gave you knowledge of good and evil but at the cost of becoming mortal and dying. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they became mortal, lost, and fallen, and per God's word would surely die. In addition, we learn in Mosiah 16.3 that Adam's fall was the cause of all mankind becoming carnal, sensual, devilish, knowing evil from good, and subjecting themselves to the devil. If, while in that state, they ate the fruit from the tree of life, they would lose the ability to die, and that fallen state they were in would become permanent. So, to keep his promise of mortal death, once Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God put cherubim and a flaming sword to block access to the tree of life, as Alma explains. And Adam's fall was not a surprise to God. It was exactly according to plan. His plan was for us to gain a perfect immortal body such as he has and return to his presence in glory. But now there were two obstacles to us becoming like God. God is perfect and has an immortal body. And so the first obstacle is that we will all lose our bodies to death. And second, the second obstacle is that we are all morally fallen and sinful. And as Amulek stated in Alma 1137, no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. So we are in fallen bodies and we are sinful. But God provides a way 
to overcome these two obstacles and return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. First, thanks to Christ's death and resurrection, everyone will be resurrected. In Alma 11, Amulek explained the nature of this resurrection. Verse 43, the spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time. So, thanks to the resurrection, we will all rise with immortal bodies. That all sounds good, and we breathe a sigh of relief until we read the second half of that verse. And we shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now, and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. Being resurrected sounded great until we found out that we would have to attend our own trial and judgment, and especially not when the minimum standard used at our trial is perfection. And as Alma said in Alma 12:13, and in this awful state we shall not dare to look up to our God, and we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us to hide us from his presence. But someday we will all have to stand before God, if only we had time to get ourselves ready. Alma continues the sermon. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. God considered it important for us to understand his plan so that we would know that this life was our chance to get ready. So he sent angels to explain it to us or as Alma phrased it in verse 28, And after God had appointed that these things should come unto men, behold, then he saw that it was expedient that man should know concerning the things whereof he had appointed unto them. Therefore he sent angels to converse with them, which caused men to behold of his glory, and they began from that time forth to call on his name. Therefore God conversed with men and made known unto them the plan of redemption, which had been prepared from the foundation of the world, and this he made known unto them according to their faith and repentance and their holy works. And here again we see the concept of learning according to our willingness to apply what we learn. Elsewhere in the scriptures, and we won't read it today, we read about an angel appearing to Adam and explaining the plan to him. And this plan can be revealed to all mankind, as verse 30 says, according to their faith and repentance and their holy works. Then... After making the plan known to mankind, God gave commandments, quote, that they should not do evil. As the Doctrine and Covenant scripture said previously, if we were obedient, we would be blessed with commandments, not a few. Then, if mankind chose to use their probationary state to violate the commandments, the consequence would be a spiritual death and the plan of redemption would not be able to save them. They would appear unprepared at the judgment bar, but if they repented and did not harden their hearts, they would enter into God's rest. Alma then ended with an exhortation in verse 37. And now, my brethren, seeing that we know these things and they are true, let us repent and harden not our hearts, that we provoke not the Lord our God to pull down his wrath upon us, and these the second commandments, which he has given unto us, but let us enter into the rest of God, which is prepared according to his word. Now we move into chapter 13, which is going to be a lot quicker than the last chapter. After the gospel plan was revealed to mankind, it says, God ordained high priests 
to teach his commandments to the people. These high priests had been ordained before the world began on account of their exceeding faith and good works. Others, however, would harden their hearts and reject the Spirit of God, although were it not for this, the scripture says, they might have had as great privilege as their brethren. Nowhere in the Book of Mormon is the role of high priests discussed more than in this chapter. And that makes me wonder, why did he choose to teach this particular concept to this particular audience? Maybe men such as Zeezrom and Antiona were high priests, or maybe there were those in the audience who wanted to be high priests. We don't know for sure. Alma continued to describe high priests, emphasizing the personal righteousness associated with that office. Verse 10. Now, as I said concerning the holy order, or this high priesthood, there were many who were ordained and became high priests of God, and it was on account of their exceeding faith and repentance and their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish. Therefore, they were called after this holy order and were sanctified and their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. Now they, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, having their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, they could not look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. And there were many, exceedingly great many, who were made pure and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. Alma then encouraged his listeners to be humble and repent. And he gave Melchizedek as a historical example of a great high priest. Similar to his talk to the people of Zarahemla in Alma 5, Alma encouraged the people of Ammonihah to repent, but he didn't specify what behavior they specifically needed to change. Instead, he bore witness of the plan of salvation and taught gospel fundamentals. Elder Boyd K. Packer made the following statement in a 1986 Enzyme article, which might explain why Alma's sermons to such a wicked city might have focused on gospel principles rather than on their specific sinful actions. Here's what he said. True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. Preoccupation with unworthy behavior can lead to unworthy behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. Alma, it says, spoke many more words unto the people which are not recorded, and then he finished. And that's also where we wrap up today, which means it's time for another trivia question. So here's the question. In Alma 16, we'll read about the city of Ammonihah being utterly obliterated by a Lamanite army, and sorry for the spoiler. Where did this army come from? Where did they come from? I'll want a chapter and verse, and I'll give you a hint. The answer isn't in Alma chapter 16. And we will see you next time.